Amen. So I could use a number of verses. I'm just going to use Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to start at around verse 13 and make some observations about the second leg of the uh, parlor of law and grace that we have been looking at in terms of Bunyan's uh, interpreter's house at the second frame, the parlor of law and grace. An application of the gospel upon the heart is what we've been dealing with. This is what he wants us to understand about this metaphor. It's an application of the gospel upon the heart. This is uh, Ephesians chapter, I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 3.13. Galatians 3.13 is where we want to be. Hear the reading and then we'll work through our outline here. The Apostle Paul is doing something in Galatia that is relevant to the uh, categories under the uh, parlor that's important to capture. The dusty parlor of law and grace is the ability to distinguish the difference between law and grace and its parallelisms and its contrast in relationship to its application to the heart. We've already identified that the heart is the essence of who we are. Mankind is not merely a corporeal creature, a physical creature. He is because he's created in the Imago Dei, spiritual at his essence, carnal in his substance, or that is physical in the substance. We're a dual creature in the uh, psychophysiological sense, a dual creature meaning that Psychologically, we are, um, we are moral ethical creatures, agency of moral ethical consciousness. Physiologically, we are mortal creatures that live and die. And that duality is important to understand in terms of anthropology. We are a duality of psychology and physiology. And that's the way the New Testament puts it down. Toma, Potoma is the physical body, <clears throat> or um, uh, Sarke will be the physical body, and then Suke, from which we get our term Suke, our physiology, our psychology, will deal with the physio-psycho uh, correlation of what we are. We are soul and body. When you become a believer in Christ, you become uh, at a third level, spiritually, psychophysio. So there's a trichotomy for the true believer, a dichotomy for the person that does have a, doesn't have a relationship with God. Uh, this you can find in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 23. That category is important to know, by the way. It's important to know that a person that is not connected to God at the spiritual life level, which Paul talked about in Ephesians 4, uh, 18, is only a, uh, a duality. He is only a dual creature, body and soul. And, and thus the soul will perish that is not connected to God at the spiritual level because his spiritual man is dead. When one is truly born again, you are a trichotomous creature. Trichotomy, three categories, spiritual psychological and physiological. And this is what 1 Thessalonians 520, um, 524, 521, 523 will uh, uh, explicitly explore. What is that then? What are we talking about by being uh, spiritually trichotomous versus uh, prior to being saved, being uh, spiritually dichotomous? 
The, the difference is between being connected to God, who Paul calls in Ephesians 4, being alienated from the life of God. When you and I are actually connected to God at the spiritual level, there is a third rail or third reality that emerges in our consciousness that we are now in relationship to God. That is critically important. And when we're dealing with the parlor of law and grace here, we're seeing how that the law serves as a instrument or a mechanism to drive us to our need of God because we become aware that we are in a state of sinfulness, which means to be separated from God. These were the categories we built out of points one and two. What Paul does in Galatians chapter three is treats these two subjects of law and grace in an expression that's worthy of kind of building our thoughts before we get into the time of Q&A here. I'll just put these out here as an optic for you. He'll talk about law and then he'll talk about grace and he'll talk about them in two categories as well, two adjectival categories, expressions that Bunyan is laying out in the narrative that I want us to pick up on. Galatians chapter three, verse um, 13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. That's the namas. From the curse of the law being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangs upon the tree in order, verse 14, that the blessing, blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the spirit through faith. If you look at verse 13 and 14, you see a couple of dualities there. And really, you you almost have to start back at verse 11 because Paul argues for the non-justifiable capacity of the law, but that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. The just shall live by what? Right. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. And I want you to mark that as we get into our outline that the law is designed to bring a what? A curse. He hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, if you look at it. So the mechanism for redemption is really a relationship. The mechanism for redemption is a relationship. This is what Paul will teach us in Romans 7 here in a moment. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. That's the doctrine of substitution. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs upon the tree. And certainly that's where our master's life ended, did it not? It ended on a tree. And notice what he does in verse 14, that the what, that the what? Blessing. And I want you to capture that word blessing under grace as we look at the language of the uh, uh, metaphor and the analogy of the parlor. You're going to see that come up again. Law brings a curse. The grace component brings blessing. Law is designed to curse. Grace is designed to bless. And this is going to be the distinction between he who swept with the broom and she who sprinkled water on the floor and cleaned it up. I want to read that language in a minute, because as we talked about on Wednesday, the believer should be able to make a propositional 
distinction between law and grace that also transcends mere statements, mere propositional statements. There should be a qualitatively different understanding and a qualitatively different expression, a different view, a different attachment, a different emotional commitment and identification with the concept of grace on the part of a person that knows grace. Am I making some sense as I talk with you? When a person is the object of grace and he understands the grace of God, he should not be talking about the grace of God with the same kind of pedantic, pedantic statement about law as if the law of God and the grace of God are synonyms, that they have the same value, that they have the same impact, that they have the same outcome, that they have the same import. In the life of a child of God who has been able to obtain grace through faith, that person should talk much more broadly, deeply, and jubilantly about grace than he does about law, though he never dishonors the law. We are not dishonoring the law. We are simply excelling the law relative to our experience and relationship with God because we know that our relationship with God might be via the law, but it really is in the grace of God. That makes a big difference, okay? So like the law for the believer is a schoolmaster, a tutor, okay? That's, that's a sort of a, a pideon feature. A schoolmaster is different than a father or a parent. A schoolmaster is different than a husband or a wife. They are both relationships, but one is far more intimate, far more relevant, far more ontologically connected with the person than is the schoolmaster or the law. Though you can have a great relationship with your tutor, with your, with your didascalon, you can have a good relationship with a teacher but like Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, around verse 15, he says, you guys have many teachers, but you only have one patir, one father. And what he meant by that is that the relationship between him, there it is for the relationship between Paul and the church at Corinth, should be one where they don't view him as simply the same as all of these other teachers running through Corinth. His relationship with them should go much deeper. And so it is with the child of God. If you and I are being properly taught and we are properly engaging God, grace should be a precious concept to you. It should be broadly and deeply and, um, and broadly and deeply relevant to you across every aspect of your life. So I'm, I'm being a little bit redundant with that, but I want you to understand the tone of where we're going. And, and the difference between the two will be the difference between the law bringing a what? And grace bringing a what? And that's what I want to get into. I want to talk about why if a person has experienced um, a kind of cursed event, cursed experience, and then ultimately experiences a blessed event, a blessed experience, wouldn't that reorient that person's attitude and expression and maybe whole way of life. 
Right. And this is what we want to get into when we dig it through. I want to repeat this again and then go to uh, points one, two and three quickly and get into point three in our outline. The Apostle Paul says, I'm starting at verse uh, verse uh, 11. He says, but that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by what? Therefore, when it comes to law and it comes to us needing to be justified, it would be futile for us to look to the law for justification. Now, the law might be a good friend on a bunch of levels, but he cannot make us right with God, with God at the level of offense. I need a better lawyer than the law. I need a better advocate than the law. He will take me before the judge and he will show the judge all the things that are indicted upon me and agree with the judge that I deserve to be punished. And when the judge says this is what is required for you to be justified, the law says, sorry, I can't help you. And so now I'm stuck being judged. That's called a curse. Grace comes along and affirms the law and the guilt of the sinner. And it affirms all of the indictments laid out against him. And the judge says, so what shall be done to this man, lawyer Grace? And lawyer Grace will say, I paid his debt. I paid his fine. I took his place. I endured his punishment. That man legally is free to go. That's going to be a different kind of court case on that day, isn't it? So what grace will bring in the life of the believer is a sense of pardon from what he knows he justly deserves before God. And necessarily then, my relationship to grace is going to be one of profound indebtedness compared to law. That's what Paul is teaching here. Verse 12, and the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. He gives you a hypothetical. If you can do it, you'll live. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. We call this an absolute proposition of definitive accomplishment. We call this particular redemption accomplished. Christ hath not, he doesn't need to, he has redeemed us from the curse of the law. How did he do it? Being made a curse for us. We call that what? Substitution. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on the tree. In order that, here's the word that's going to emerge now, is going to peak on the screen of qualitative difference between he who sweeps with the broom and creates a dusty mess all in the parlor, parlor versus her who washes the whole parlor down, right? And brings it into a pristine state of uh, a very, very important concept, and it's going to be called cleanliness, Cleansing, cleansing, cleansing. The law shows our dirtiness. Grace cleanses us from that dirtiness. And that becomes for the new creature in Christ an extremely important thing. In order that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit by faith. Remember that because we're going to come back to it. All right. In your outline, if you look under point number one in your outline, we're going to walk through it. I want to get to point number three fairly quickly. Just reiterating under point number one, the heart is the ground of reality in in terms of mankind. Mankind is what he is where? In its heart. So point A, B, and C, this is gospel propositional truth. Mankind is a sinner from 12 years old. What does it say? From the womb. That's right. He is given to lawlessness as a constant behavior. This is what God says. All have sinned and they keep coming short of hitting the mark. So all human beings are by nature sinners. 
Thirdly, he is therefore what? Separated from God. That's the big optic right there. That's Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2. If you can pull it up and then again, Ephesians 4.18. When a person is separated from God, when a person is separated from God, they are in a state of being under the curse. And I'm going to deal with that as a metaphor here because organic metaphors are what scripture frequently uses to help us understand these kind of categories. But your iniquities have what? Separated between you and your God. So what does it mean to be separated from God? According to Ephesians 4.18, it means for us to be alienated from the life of God. Now we might have physical life, but we don't have spiritual life. And physical life might be broad in its expression and influential in the world on a temporary basis, but it doesn't constitute a connection with the world to come. The world to come is founded upon spiritual realities of which if you and I are merely carnal and don't have a new nature in Christ by which we can comprehend, understand, engage, and hope for the world to come, the world to come is of no value to us. The only value is this life, okay? And that's, that. when we are separated from God, that's it. And God tells us what happens when you and I are identified purely as sinners. The preaching of the gospel requires this kind of law assessment. This is what we stated. When you share the word of God with people, we talked about it. And every believer should be able to talk to people about where they are with God when we have a proper understanding of it. It requires maturity. It requires timing. We talked about that. Probably the most difficult thing for a believer to be able to do is look for a door that opens for them to share a fairly comprehensive presentation of the gospel. Does that make sense? Uh, Every now and then you might meet somebody Every now and then you might meet somebody and say, look, man, I don't know anything about God. You got about an hour or two to talk to me about that. That would be great, wouldn't it? If it's it's not a daunting task because you're not prepared. But if someone says, I'll give you a couple hours to tell me all that you know about my state before God and what I need to be accepted with him. And you got two hours. What a privilege. With two hours, you would never have to say anything else to that person ever again if you are prepared to be a full-grown Christian. Remember what I told you a full-grown Christian is. That's what an evangelist is. An evangelist is just a full-grown Christian. An evangelist is simply a believer who has walked with God long enough and seriously enough to be always ready to give an answer to every man of the hope of the calling that's within you. And you're not shrinking away from the gospel. You're not afraid to talk about God being one true and living God. You're not afraid to say that there's only one God. You're not afraid because that's what you know. And then you're not afraid to say that we're all created in his image. I mean, you can say that because that's what you know. That's what this God has taught you. And then you can say we all fell in Adam Okay, our our federal head and parents. And therefore, because he sinned, we're sinners. And that's why we do what we do. We do what we do because of who we are. We don't we're not who we are because of what we do. We do what we do because of who we are. We are by nature sinners. And and therefore, we have a problem when it comes to God's righteousness. And that problem is that the wages of sin is death. You can see how I'm leading us into helping a person understand just at a basic level 
um, that he's a sinner and in need of a savior, right? It doesn't take long. That's not a lengthy conversation. That doesn't require an hour. You can get there in five minutes if you are ready. Does that make sense? And it should be natural to you. As a Christian, it should be natural to you to be able to share the gospel. Grown, grown believers are ready to share the gospel. And therefore, you're going to bring law into the equation because you're going to hope that the spirit of God is working with the law to um, scatter the dust that's in the heart of the lost sinner and cause that lost sinner to become conscious of his guilty state before God. Did that make some sense? That the dust would start to emerge and and emanate and rise and fill the room with the affirming testimony that, that that sinner cannot just go away saying others are sinners, but I'm not. So when you share with that person, what we mean by you being a sinner is that First John chapter 3, 4 says, you're, you know, sin is transgression of the law. And transgression of God's law means that we violate God's standard. God says that we are to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but we don't. That's a problem. God says we shall not covet our neighbor's goods, but we do. That's a problem. God says we shall not commit adultery, but our hearts crave things other than God. That's a problem. God says don't steal, but we steal frequently by misrepresenting words. Because all of these lines of what we call the Torah in Exodus 20 are really unbreak, unbreakable lines. If, you're an, if you and I don't have a healthy relationship with God at the level of idolatry, we're breaking all those commandments, whether you know it or not. Am I making some sense? Right. And every now and then you'll run across somebody that will say, well, I, I don't I don't violate God's law. And then you'll say, yeah, you do, because you're not bearing record with the truth of, of what God says. Right. So if God says we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, then you come and you say, not me. Well, now you've just challenged God at the level of his decree. So now you're smarter than God. All the rest of us agree with God. You don't. You're in trouble. See what I'm getting at? And so what you would want to be able to do with that person is reason with them. That's 1 Peter 3.15. You're reasoning with them around the logical uh, assessment that we're not perfect. Now, what should happen if the Spirit of God is helping you help them to know they're not uh, perfect is their conscience is now going to be going throughout the regions of their soul historically and picking up on affirmations that that proposition is true. Yes, I am not perfect. Now we got to go from admitting that we're not perfect to that we're actually bad. And so the dust has to keep rising until we go, you know, no, I'm worse than not perfect. I am way far from being perfect. And then God will keep working until you realize that you're choking on your sin and you need someone to rescue you. And the spirit of God has to do that. And he might take years to do that in a person's life. It might take years. This is getting back to the assignment. It may take you. I told you that thief on the cross could have been wrestling with this since he was 12 years old. And finally close with Jesus on Calvary, where he's under a death penalty for having done something that amounted to capital punishment, right? Um, so, you know, you and I are still wrestling with that in terms of Q&A around, you know, how can I know? How can I know? You got your whole life to know. 
you know, whether you're saved or not. These are things we're going to work through. So look under point number two, the necessity for sin to be known and acknowledged. The necessity for sin to be known and acknowledged. So when God is drawing a person to himself, John 16, 8, when he's drawing a person to himself, remember the trifecta. I taught you guys the trifecta. Sin, what? Righteousness, what? Judgment. That's John 16, 8. You got to know that that is the track. Those are the winning tickets to becoming a child of God. He's going to convince you of sin. He's going to convince you that righteousness is achieved outside of yourself in another, exclusively in his son. And when that righteousness is clearly comprehended and you embrace it by faith, you will experience the declaration that there is no more condemnation. That's what that third trifecta is about. Did you guys get that? That's that third trifecta. And when he has come, the spirit of truth, he will reprove the world, that's you and me, of sin and of righteousness and of what? John chapter 5, verse 24. Let me see. John 5, 24, maybe John 5, 25. Listen to this. This is how it goes. Yes, here it is. Verily, verily, I truly, truly, I say unto you, the one that heareth my word, so you know, propositional engagement is one speaking, another what? Hearing. And faith comes how? So verily, verily, I say unto you, he that hears my words and believes on him that sent me, that individual has what? And shall never come into, but is passed from death to life. So it started with proposition. Now it's the possession of eternal life, is it not? That's a powerful promise, isn't it? Is that a powerful promise? Is that a blessing? That's a gospel blessing, right? It creates a level of absolute astonishment that hearing and believing can result in not only having everlasting life, but never coming into judgment. What a promise. Huge, isn't it? Right. And so this is why what we're doing is not merely academic. The thing that changes a person's trajectory for eternity are words. So both of them that are working in the house, he that is sweeping with the broom, creating the dust. What's his name? What's his name? Moses. Moses. Moses brought you the law, John 7, 117a, right? But he that, she, she, we'll get there in a moment, that came with water to, to sprinkle down the dust and cleanse and purify the heart, she is the gospel. And we'll talk about and identify that more properly here in a moment. So under point number two, subpoints A, B, C, and D, the law is the light of the knowledge essential to that first work of convincing us that we're sinners. Listen to Romans 7, verse 7. You guys have heard it before, but hear it again. We're, We're truckling down. This is what Paul says. What shall I say then? Is the law sin? What? Right. The law is never sin. We're sin. The law is not. The law is simply the light that lets us know we're sin. Right. Don't get it twisted. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the what? So the law brings us a knowledge of sin. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, you shall not what? Covet. There it is. There it is. So this is the verse we'll use. Subpoint B and second point. Sin is what? Transgression of God's law. 
That, that, and when you're dealing with people around the definition of sin, be quick to anchor it in to the concept of transgression first, because <clears throat> the idea of sin is really a relational proposition and transgression is a legal proposition. I've talked to you guys about this before. Let me help you. Can I do that? Hamartia is the idea of missing the mark. It's failing to achieve a certain goal. In that context, it's about behavior, about behavior. Transgression is when you get a set of rules and you're told to do this and you don't or don't do this and you do. That's a legal action. Did that make some sense? Both of them are relational, but the distinction is that one is about a behavior that gets affirmed by the other, the legal code. Okay, so when we transgress, we are violating God's law. When we sin, we are violating our relationship with God. When we transgress God's law, God says, this is what you did. When we sin, we are violating our relationship with God. Did you hear what I just stated? This is Psalm 51 against you and you only have I sinned. That's what David is saying. So what I'm trying to help us understand is the concept of sin in relationship to law is not merely legal contractual uh, fodder. It's expressing the fact that in our relationship with God, we have offended him. Now, only, only people with whom you have a relationship can be offended. You would agree with that. So what God comes along and says, hey, hey, you've offended me. And we go, how? You violated my law. Why? Because I'm a lawgiver. What do you mean you're a lawgiver? You're law, he's Lord. He's the one that sets the rules. See what I'm getting at? Very important to know that. This is what I love about David. That's what Psalm 34 and Psalm 51 are all about. All about. David is not sitting there arguing with God about what David did. He's not arguing with God as to whether or not the legislation of, of the law at the transgression uh, our offense level is a problem. David is toiling with the fact that he's offended his God. Can you sense that in Psalm 51? Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your what? That's anthropomorphic. He's saying, Father, I have sinned in your presence. It's not, it's not primarily what he did, but against whom he did it. Did that make some sense? Right. And so what I'm doing is massaging the idea that when God is dealing with you and drawing you, I'm going to get some glue and glue both of y'all's guitar stools down. And, 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 And drawing you, when God is drawing you and showing you what you are, that constitutes another level of relationship. Because he could leave you alone. So I, I just want you to understand, you know, we're coming to the end of the parlor of law and grace, and I just want to make sure you get this. Our brother, uh, pilgrim, Christian, still has that burden on his back, doesn't he? And yet God has been drawing him, taking him here, taking him there, revealing this to him, revealing that to him. This brother is getting grand insights. He's meeting helpers of the kingdom. He's having doors opened. He's entering into those doors. He's seen revelations of transcendent realities that obstinate did not see, that pliable did not see. 
Pilgrim is on his journey, is he not? Now, if Pilgrim were to stop today and turn around and go back, he'd be more guilty than if he had never, ever started the journey. Am I making some sense? Right. So this is a really interesting paradoxical thing here. Keep this with me. Keep it with me. I got you for another 30 minutes. What's paradoxical about biblical truth is that biblical truth can be an eternal blessing to any of us if it terminates in, in, in the course in which it's designed to go. But it can also be an increase in our eternal damnation should we come short of the blessing of the aim of being exposed to biblical truth. You guys got that? So the Bible is clear that it would be better if he had not known the way of truth than to have known the way of truth and departed from it. I remember this when I was growing up in the hood 150 years ago and and God had saved me, right? I've told you the story before. So growing up in the hood, one of the things that happened to me after I was converted and after I got grounded in the word of God, and this, was on, this only was about three, four, five months in. I started reading scripture at 17 and became voracious at it. And I had a burden to share with my hood brothers, my, my, my drug addict buddies, my, 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 you know, my get down buddies. I, I wanted to share the gospel with them. So I ran right back up in the hood and, and, I, and I'm talking to them about the gospel and they're giving me about 10 minutes. Right. I'm using an analogy. They, they listen to me long enough because I'm the boy. You know, we're doing all kind of crazy stuff together. They figure, you know, I've been touched. I better listen to my boy. You know, they're listening. Right. And, and every now and then you, you get a sense where they're going, OK, that, that's enough. Jess. That's enough. That's enough. I had one buddy who was my closest buddy and he said, um, I can see you coming at me. I need to ask you a question, Jess. Um, if I listen to you, am I going to be more culpable for, he didn't use that language, he said, am I going to be more accountable? Am I going to be in worse shape if I listen to you or if I tell you just stop right now? And I told him, if you tell me stop right now, you know, you're still going to be in trouble, but it's not going to be as bad. He said, stop. He said, don't tell me nothing now. And in six months, we found him on the side of the Oakland Hills because we were gangbangers. Did y'all hear what I just stated? And that was one of the one time, one of the one occasions where, because I did not know how to negotiate the gospel. This is what you don't know when you don't know. I did not know the value of crossing the line and giving him the full message because I did not assume that something like that would happen so quick because we all think we're going to live to be 100 years old. But but that's an absolute uh, contradictory notion in the hood where we know that we're dying every couple of weeks and months, particularly in the drug game. Am I making some sense? So it's extremely important to know that just because people don't want to hear it or just because they may be perturbed or they're struggling with it, if it's your assignment to share it with them without violating Matthew 7. You don't violate Matthew 7. You don't cast your pearl before swine. You don't try to give dogs that which is, is me. You don't argue and fight with people. You do try to appeal to them. And uh, as the parable of the uh, wedding feast says, compel them. That's a big difference. You guys understand what I just stated? In love, you try to compel 
and I, I guess I'm putting this out here particularly to those of us who may have relationships with loved ones in ways in which your position in that relationship might merit compelling them, if that makes sense, like a grandparent to their grandkids. You know, if my grandkids, um, I, if I saw them going down the pathway that I went down, I would compel them. You know, they wouldn't get a, a nicety from me. You know, can PJ, I mean, uh, they call me Poppy. Poppy, uh, can we talk about it later? No, 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 no. Come here. Right? No, I'm talking to you now because if you go out the door, I can tell you. You may not come back. Come here. You know, because you want the Holy Ghost to go with them when they leave from talking with you so he can keep sprinkling the dust so they can choke before they die. Did that make some sense? You want them to choke before they die. Help, Lord. You want them to choke before they die. Uh, Definitely. So under um, point number, uh, there it is, under point number uh, two, sub point B under point number two, since the transgression of the law. Sub point three, law is designed to do what? Magnify the guilt. That's the dust flying everywhere. I love that analogy. You know, if you're a slouch, which I might qualify to be that on certain days, okay? If you're a slouch, you can live with a little bit of dirt. You can live with a little bit of chaos. You can live with a little bit of uh, filth. Not you, y'all holy, y'all clean and pure and all that. I'm talking about a sinner like me. You know, some of us can live with a little bit of uh, the discomfort of a um, unclean life, if that makes sense. And the reality is, is that a lot of people do. They live in a state of uncleanness. You know that. Um, And and it becomes normative to us, particularly if you live in conditions and states of society where not only do you have moral propriety or moral rectitude as a common standard for your character and conduct, but in addition to no moral rectitude, no ethical break, no decent society, then you live in the chaos of a uh, poor environment with little resources. And therefore, you may be inclined to live with little less cleanliness. Am I making some sense? Like our homeless brothers. And I don't even have to go that low. I mean, I know what poverty is like. If you do, then you know what I'm talking about. And you get used to being unclean. You just get used to being unclean. So what God has to do for you when you are uh, maladjusted to uncleanness, which I believe is a metaphor for your average unconscious sinner, they're maladjusted to their uncleanness. They're going about thinking they're all right because nobody's calling them on how they smell. I'm trying to press the point home. Is it, is it coming? No, ain't nobody's calling them because you, you can get used to that, right? Man, I was, where was I? I was at the gym the other day and I was going in the door and a brother was coming out the door and when he passed me, I said, whoa, the whole gym had to put up with that? <laughs> I'm like, whoa. This brother is maladjusted to his funk. Right, and, and that would be the case with some people. Would you agree? You know that every ethnic group has different measures of hygieno consciousness. 
Did y'all know that? Every ethnic group has some of my African brothers. I'm sorry, some of my African brothers, big old problems. I'm just telling you, brother, you need some something. Then also my Indian brothers, my, my Middle Eastern brothers, they, I'm like, dude, we have deodorant here, right? Come on, man. You know, and, and our British brother, I got some British brothers that think they, they, can, they can go three weeks without taking a bath. No. And that's because we are biologically depraved. You have to wash in order that society can put up with you. This is all a metaphor I'm putting out, by the way. You do understand that, right? Because Matthew 15 is our text. Jesus said, it's not what goes in you that defiles you. It's what comes out of you that defiles you. We know that at the spiritual level, God doesn't regard at all our physicality. It is not true that cleanliness is next to godliness. Otherwise, wealthy people are more godly than poor people. And that could never be true. Right, it can never be true. But the analogy does, does have comport, doesn't it? Because what Paul said was godliness uh, uh, with contentment is great gain. Bodily exercise profits little. So he definitely wants us to understand the priority of spiritual things. When we look at subpoint D, the law is designed to lead to self-condemnation. That's where we left off last night. I want to drop that into the hopper and help us overcome some of the misrepresentations of a false sense of self-esteem in our context. This is going to be Romans 7, 21 through 25. We talked about this last night. Here's what an honest man struggling with his sin will say. This is an honest man. He says, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. So do you understand that tension, child of God? Do you understand the tension of thinking right, but doing wrong? And, and, and being conscious of that, right? Thinking right, but doing wrong and being conscious of that and realizing I got a problem here, right? Scotty, we got a problem, right? Because I am aware of what I should be doing. And now I'm aware that I'm not doing it. So now I am now going through a process of rationalizing why I don't. And what I need to be careful to do as I rationalize it, because rationalizing is the way we save ourselves from losing our mind. Uh, I have to be careful that while I'm rationalizing, I don't diminish the significance of that problem. As I'm rationalizing what I know I should do, but I'm not, I don't want to diminish the significance of that problem. Why? Because I know that if I'm thinking right about what I should be doing, I don't want to be thinking any other way about what I should be doing. I don't want to reverse <clears throat> my logic <clears throat> and say, then what I am doing is the most important thing, even though it's contrary to what I know I should be doing. You should, if you hear me, you know what I'm doing. I'm reversing the process in my rationale to suggest that it's all right for me to keep doing what I'm doing, even though there's a part of my mind that says this is wrong. Are you hearing me? Because this is how you strengthen yourself in a wrong behavior by rationalizing. Now, Paul is saying, I'm not doing that. This is called an honest man. I told you, an honest person is not going to hell. Have I told you that? Right, because there's a work going on in him or her where they are being real about their struggle. 
Because that's the only way you can get to Jesus is to be real about your struggle. So look at what he says. He says, I find in a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. Okay, that's a dynamic in our members. That's an environment. That's a bunch of things we could talk about at a deeper psychoanalytical level. Verse 22, for I do delight in the law of God after the inward man. You got that? I do delight in the law of God after the inward man. If I do find that I enjoy biblical teaching, I enjoy the gospel, I enjoy the word of God, I enjoy teaching, I enjoy these things that God has given to us in Torah, that is a beautiful evidence of something happening. Do you understand that? You know, I argue with people all the time around this, not all the time lately, but I have in my younger days that the fundamental work of grace in your life is that your mind becomes compatible with the mind of God at the level of God's truth. That's the first and most important thing. We have to have the mind of Christ. So if God says, you know, you who love the Lord hate evil, I want to hate evil, even if I'm doing it. Right. He didn't say hate evil out there. He said hate evil everywhere. Right. So that's a tension, isn't it? Because I want to love God and therefore I hate the evil that I do. That's a good sign. That's a good sign. Listen to it. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. That's the new man. That's the category. Verse 23, for I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind. There it is. There's something in my members. You know what it's called? It's called the principle of lust. Y'all do know that. It's driving you in a whole nother direction. It has no desire to hang out with God until it's full of what it does. Does anybody know what I mean by that? When your lust is fulfilled, then it's ready to go to church with you. It definitely want to go to church after it has gotten down, gotten down. Yeah, man, let's go do some church, right? Deceitful, isn't it, girl? Isn't it deceitful? Right. But it's important for you to know that. It's important for you to know that because that, that thing there that Paul is about to describe in verse 25, you got to live with. You got to manage that thing, child of God. This is where sanctification comes in. At. You and I got to manage that thing. Here's what he says. I see another law in my member warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into the captivity of the law of sin, which is in my members. And so there it is. He's saying there's a there's a power dynamic there that's working to mitigate my right thinking. It's happening. This is this is not a this is not a sum zero game. This is not like one side is pulling. The other side is pulling and we're standing in the middle. No. One side is pulling you away from the middle. And, and, and if you're if, if grace is operating at the level of you identifying with your inner man, you go, oh, I'm in trouble. Is that right? I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. I'm going the wrong way. That's a good thing. Look at 24. Oh, wretched man that I am. See it? You know what that's called? Self-condemnation. I taught y'all that on Wednesday. It's the metaphor of the person that has committed murder. And the person that has committed murder has been caught and been condigned to a slow death of taking the body that they committed murder against and attaching it to the person who committed that murder. 
face to face, mouth to mouth, hand to hand, body to body. So that now you are strapped to that wretched man that you killed. And that wretched man now is going to become you because all of the toxins are about to transfer to you over days and weeks and months. And it's going to be a slow death for you to understand what it means to be a murderer. Am I making some sense? And that's a depiction of us in our fallen nature apart from it being redeemed by the grace of God. And without that kind of healthy, grotesque perspective, you and I might think our old man with its sinful lust and deceitful lust is cute. Yet God says it's dead in trespasses and sins. God says metaphorically it's reeking with putrefying sores from the top of our head to the soles of our feet. God says it's like open graves, an open sepulcher, the stench at the metaphorical level. You guys are understanding what I'm saying. So what's going on when a person becomes aware of that level of enmity and odious uncleanness? That person is becoming aware of their condemnation of the law and their guilt as a sinner under the wrath of God. They're being brought to be aware that they are wretched. See what I'm getting at now? Right. When you are at that place of wretchedness, there's only one thing to do. Cry out. That's what the text is teaching. See what I'm getting? That's what I'm saying. This is why a lot of, a lot of Christians are not here yet. Oh, wretched man that what? I am. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And this is where you and I built an argument around when the law is done doing its proper work. It's bringing you to the question of a person, not the question of a deed or an act. The law is not bringing you to do something else to get right. The law is bringing you to a person who's done something to make you right. Did y'all catch that? Right. So the who versus the what is really a determining factor around whether the law is being properly applied, because in many systems, the law is used as a means of salvation. So you are a sinner and you do this and you do that and you do this and you do that and you do this and you do that. If you want to be right with God, you got to stop this and you got to stop that and you got to stop this and you got to stop that and you got to stop this and you got to stop that. That's what we hear. That's called reformation. And and ignorant religious folk will say, fine, okay, I'll do that for about a week. And then they're back at the behavior again. So they're on the seesaw and the cartwheel going back and forth between doing it and not doing it. Doing it and not doing it. Are you guys hearing what I'm saying? Doing it and not doing it. They're far from the efficacy and grace of the gospel still. We're far from the efficacy and grace of the gospel to deliver. We are in the struggle, but we're far from the efficacy. We, we need to actually hear and experience the solution that's in Christ that breaks the power of that capacity to bring us into captivity. Am I making some sense? 
All right, good, good. Oh, deliver me, oh, wretched man who, that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Here's verse 25. And it's very important to make sure that whenever you're quoting verse 25, you don't disassociate it at any length from verse 25. If you're going to ver- quote verse 24, you've got to ver- quote verse 25 if you are a Christian. Did you hear what I just stated? Right. I thank God through Jesus Christ. Our, our Lord. So here I am. Oh, wretched man that I am. Boy, I thank God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because what am I doing? I am condemning myself in the context of the grounds of my justification through the merits of the one who loved me and gave himself for me. Did that make some sense? Now, this is really important because I think only the Christian can safely condemn himself. And will do it gladly to defer to the hope that is found in Christ. See, and we actually, we talked about that on Wednesday. I gave you the text. When we're doing the Lord's table, <clears throat> you guys ought to know, the Lord's table requires as a protocol that we judge ourselves. The reason why we eat the bread and drink the cup is because we have judged ourselves to be a wretched man. Did y'all know that? Raise your hand if you didn't know that. I'm going to show you. Did y'all know that? Half of y'all didn't know that. Raise your hand back up. See, you're guilty. Guilty of assuming you know. I've never, I haven't read that in a long time. I'm going to show it to you. First Corinthians chapter 11. Just going to show you the blessing of the metaphor of the cup and the bread as being a conclusio to a self-analysis that I need something outside of myself as the grounds of my confidence, right? So I'm in First Corinthians chapter um, 11. I just want you to see this and then we'll move on. First Corinthians chapter 11 And I will read over in um, verse uh, verse 30. I'm going to start at verse 28. This is after Paul gives the the formulation for the cup. But let a man do what? Let a man do what? And then in this regard, let him eat that bread and what? Drink that cup. So eating and drinking is a post-examination process. Would you agree? So I'm taking the cup and I'm, I'm, I'm taking the bread after a post-examination. So in this examination, what does Paul say we should do? For the one that eats and drinks unworthily, eats and drinks damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. That is God. For if we would what? Judge ourselves, we should not be So the elements become for us an escape from our judgment because we've judged ourselves. That makes sense, right? I know I'm redundantly using the word krenos, which is the term judgment, but it makes sense. If I take the elements, I am judging myself as being a wretched man, needing deliverance from another, namely the one in whom these elements represent. Does that follow? When I take the cup and I take the wine, I'm saying I'm a sinner and the merits of my standing before God is the benefits of this one who became wretched for me. See what I'm getting at. Now, actually, you and I now have, moved, have begun to move into the sprinkling of the water, even by this conversation, because this part of the conversation feels good, doesn't it? Does this part of the conversation feel good? Think about it now, because this is what I said I wanted you to do, because Bunyan knows what he's doing when he changes the 
tone and character <clears throat> of the second person coming in. The first person who comes in and sweeps, he is the law. His name is what? But the second one that comes in, and you can see this under point number two, headed to point number three, interpreter. But she that brought water and did sprinkle it is the what? Right. And down at the maybe at the bottom of your outline, you don't have it. I'm going to quote it for you so you can have it in your ears. It should have been in there. But here it is again. As you saw, this is uh, the interpreter speaking again. As you saw the damsel, she's called a damsel, sprinkle the room with water upon which it was cleansed with pleasure. Upon which it was cleansed with pleasure. This is how Bunyan is talking. This is to show you. That means it has revelatory impact. It has knowledge orientation to it, right? When you see her sprinkling the room with pleasure, that's a whole different orientation than the law coming in, making dust fly everywhere. She's sprinkling the room with what? This is to show you that when the gospel comes, when it comes in, when the gospel comes in, right? uh, The just shall live by faith, right? Uh, without faith, it's impossible to please God, right? For he that comes into God must believe that he is and is a rewarder of them that what? Diligently seek him. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall what? Verily, verily, I say unto you, the one that hears him that sent me has eternal life. All of this is gospel language. This is water being sprinkled. Are you hearing me? Christ has become a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is he that hangs upon the tree in order that we might receive the blessings of Abraham by faith. That is the outpouring and promise of the Holy Spirit, which is the seal of your salvation. You're hearing the sprinkling now. Can you hear it? Does it take on a different aesthetic benefit in your mind and soul? It should, because that is the qualitative difference between the preaching of the gospel and the preaching of the law. Right? The preaching of the gospel for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He that hath the son hath life. The one that does not have the son of God does not have life, right? If you and I are believing on Christ is because we have been born again and the ones that have been born again love those that have been born again as well, Right? He that hath the son hath the witness in himself and the witness always bears truth. And the witness is the third person. This becomes a washing of the soul, does it not? And on and on and on. So many different propositions can be set forth as I'm sharing with you the difference between uh, law and grace. Here's what he goes on to say. She that comes in is the gospel and it comes in with the sweet and precious influences upon the heart with sweet and precious influences upon the heart. When the gospel comes, it comes with sweet and precious influences upon the heart. Is that true? See what I'm getting at? I know what John is doing. Do you know what he's doing? John is saying that there is in the experience of grace under the preaching of the gospel, levels of comfort and delight that cannot be found under the decrees of law keeping. There is going to be a substantially, aesthetically different 
feel sense of impact of the gospel when it comes that way, especially if the spirit of God is working. Listen to what he goes on to say to close. Then I say, even as you saw the damsel lay the dust by sprinkling the floor with water, so is sin vanquished and subdued and the soul may cling through faith in it and consequently fit for the king of glory to inhabit it. So I'm going to read it again because I know you didn't get it because you're not, you're not keeping up with me. What John Bunyan is saying is the woman that is employing the water of grace, the cleansing water of grace, does it with pleasure because she knows when that work is done, the heart is fit for the king of glory to dwell therein. See? See what I'm saying now? All right. So let's look at point number three and begin to work through some notions and then we'll open the floor. I'm, 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 I'm overdue. Point number three. The remedy of man's ruin is Christ's righteousness. Would you agree with that? That's the trifecta in John 16, 8. John 16, 8 when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he'll convince the world of sin and he'll convince the world that the only remedy of sin is what? Christ's righteousness. Right. That's right. I'm just telling you the goal of the spirit is to bring you to the righteousness of Christ, which you need to be right with God. And so under point number three, sub point A, the work of the spirit in the application of grace via what? The work of the Spirit in the application of grace via the metaphor of water. You guys know your Bibles, don't you? You can't go anywhere in the scriptures where people are brought into a relationship with God. Where water is not used to indicate a transition from filth to cleansing. You do know that. The first and greatest and grandest in the Old Testament is Noah's flood, right? I've got to clean this place up, saith the Lord. Heaven and earth came into subservient obedience to God because he said, I'm washing this earth and we're starting this thing all over again. That's the metaphor of God being holy. Therefore, you also must be what? So the cleansing took place by God washing away the old world and establishing a new world. A beautiful metaphor of which you and I know Peter said this represents what? Baptism. Baptism, that old flood of, the, uh, uh, of Genesis 6 through 9 was a metaphor of God washing us by death. The water is like Jordan into which the ark went and was overwhelmed by the waters coming down and the waters coming up and, and during the cleansing process. And when it was all over with, when it was time, God said, open the door and Noah and his family came out and the earth was metaphorically cleansed of all the rebel sinners, right? Next time we saw that was at the Red Sea. Huge, coming out of Egypt into the wilderness, washed in the Red Sea. Do you guys remember that? The whole nation goes through the washing. Paul taught us it in 1 Corinthians 10. The next time you see this kind of washing metaphor is throughout the wilderness sojourn where God tells Joshua, get them ready to go into the promised land. 
They have to wash and be clean on the third day we're going in. And remember how the Jordan opened up all the way up to the city Adam and they crossed over. And when they crossed over, the waters came back down upon the 12 stones. And as it were, the Ark of the Covenant made a way for them to go through. And that Ark being a picture of Christ. And all through the Old Testament, you got this metaphor of washing in the tabernacle. You got what is called the big labor of washing for the priest. Go look it up. A labor is this massive bowl, massive tub where the priests are washing because they had to constantly wash in order to serve in the temple. This is why the Pharisees get it wrong in Matthew chapter five when they ask Jesus, how come your disciples aren't washing their hand before they eat? And Jesus is saying, because I'm the Sabbath because I'm the cleansing. And the truer cleansing is not washing your hands, but your heart being washed, which is what we're going to again learn on Sunday, right? Purify your heart, ye sinners. And God has to do that, right? Titus chapter 3, 5. Here we go. We're moving into some of the applications. I'll do two more verses and show you what I'm saying. We are not saved by works of righteousness, what? That we have done. We're not saved by works of righteousness that we have done. But according to his mercy, God saved us, didn't he? How did he do it? By the washing, by the washing. Do you see it? By the washing, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. So Paul is using the metaphor washing, isn't he? He's talking about washing into life, washing of regeneration, washing of regeneration. Regeneration means to be born again. Regeneration is what happens when the child comes out the womb. What comes out before the child comes out? Right. Beautiful, isn't it? The water comes out, the child comes out, and then the blood comes out. And that's why when Jesus hung on the cross and his sight was pierced, straightway came out water and blood. He is the instrumental and essential means of our washing, is he not? That's really a powerful metaphor because Regeneration or being born again is described as a kind of washing into reality, washing into a new life span. And here Jesus is a male, isn't he? And his side is pierced. And out comes the necessary elements that constitutes our sanctification and our justification, right? It's almost a kind of reverse motif because when life is brought forth through the female, it's through her womb. And both of those elements come out and the child comes out, right? But Jesus is the last Adam. And in the same way, the first Adam was put to sleep and God took a rib from his side, which means God had to cut him, which means he had to bleed too in order for Eve to be brought into existence. So it is that the church, the body of Christ, believers like you and me, we only came in because the centurion pierced his side and the blood and the water came out. And now we're looking at the grander optic Um, I'm going to close here at Ezekiel chapter 47, verses 1 through 12. I'll give you the metaphor. I want you to capture it. You should love water. (laughs) If any man thirst, let him come unto me out of his belly, said the scripture shall flow rivers of living water. And this he spake of the spirit that should be given to them, right? So now for you and I, the, the sense and perception and the idea of the gospel being a cleansing agent by this woman becomes a beautiful thing. Don't you think? Becomes a beautiful thing. Here it is. After he brought me again unto the door of the house, behold, here it is. What? Waters issued out from under the threshold of the house. The house is the temple of, 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 of God, if you don't notice. The house is the temple of God. You guys see that? 
Right? You guys know the house is the temple of God. And out of the threshold of the temple is coming what? Water, right? If the house is the temple of God in the Old Testament, what is the temple of God in the New Testament? The body of Christ. The believer. Would you agree with that? Let's lock this in. Now, this is quite powerful because you are the temple of the living God. Would that be true? If you are the temple of the living God, is it possible that you in Christ and Christ in you becomes a vehicle by which the third person represented by the water is ushering out to be a means of cleansing and healing and sanctification for others? Is that possible? Since we know that the waters flow merely through communion with God, as we're doing right now, and propositional discourse. Like it be, could be very possible someone under the hearing of my words right now is being washed by the Spirit of God. Would you agree with that? You have to know that these kinds of profound enigmas and mysteries are always possible where God is granting his people to come together under the word. It's always, and maybe it might be true for you and me right now. We could be experiencing a cleansing. We could be being made cleaner than when we came in here. Is that possible? Right. And, 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 and so I'm pressing you to be excited because the damsel, the damsel was excited to wash the floor down because she knew subsequent to her job, the king of glory gets to come in and take his seat on the throne of the heart of the sinner who has been washed by the gospel. That's, and look at the humility of this sister, this damsel. She's just glad to come in. She's not complaining. She's not arguing. She's not fussing about how filthy the house is. She's, she knows what sinners are, doesn't she? She knows her tasks. What a servant. What did our master do the night that he was betrayed, took his clothes off, wrapped himself in a robe and washed the feet, the nasty, filthy feet of his disciples? Right. See the picture? Right. And it, it, it doesn't really impact us saints unless we get a grip on the beauty of grace, the, the, the effulgence of grace, the the aroma of grace, the pleasure of grace, the power of grace, the dignity of grace, the dignity of grace. I'll read a few more verses and I'll go and notice what it says. The water came from under the threshold of the house for the front forefront of the house stood toward the east. That is towards the toward the sun. And the waters came down from under the right side of the house at the south of the altar. The altar here is the sacrifice of Christ. It must come through the sacrifice of Christ. The atonement leads to sanctification. Verse two. Here it is. Then he brought me out of the way of the gate northward and led me about the way without unto the other gate by the way that looks eastward. And behold, there ran out water on the waters on the right side. A few more verses. And when the man that had a line in his hand had went forth eastward, he measured a thousand cubits and brought me through the waters and the waters were to the ankle, a thousand cubits. So he's walking in water. One thousand cubits. It's to the ankles. That's a pretty good water flow. Wouldn't you agree? And then we read verse four and he measured another thousand cubits and another thousand cubits is a, is a lit. And he brought me through the waters and the waters are now where? To his knees. That's a significant increase in the flow. Would you agree? And it's all coming from where? The temple. That's where it's coming from. 
That's where it's coming from. And you would think that if it's coming from the temple, the further out, the less the water would be. That the water is rising. And again, he measured a thousand and brought me through the water and it was to my loins. So the water's up here now. This is Ezekiel in a visceral, uh, uh, um, 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 uh, not a miracle, but a dream. He's in a vision walking. Him and Bunyan are going through the same thing here. It's tactile. It's real for him. Notice what he says. It's to the loins. And afterwards he measured another thousand and the river was such that I could not what? For the waters were to swim in a river that he might as well start swimming, he said. Just start swimming. A beautiful picture of the inexhaustible, limitless outpouring of the third person who is the cleansing mechanism for sinners. And and the answer to this will be given here in a few verses. Look at it. Look at it. Verse six. He said unto me, son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me and caused me to go to the brink of the river. Where is he safe now? Go back. He had to come out the water because he needed to be safe. Now, when I have returned, behold, the bank of the river, there were many what? Trees on either side of the river. So now we're dealing with what? The paradisio vision. Paradise. The Garden of Eden. Four rivers flowing through Eden and trees everywhere. What is Ezekiel saying? It's from the temple that paradise is obtained by the outpouring of the third person represented by the waters, right? Uh, It's one other verse I want to capture before we close. Verse 8. I want to go through verse verse 10. No, verse 8 is the one. Then said he unto me, these waters issued out toward the east country. They go down into the desert and they go into the sea, which being brought forth into the sea, the waters shall be what? The water's coming out of the temple, going to the sea. The sea represents the masses of the Gentiles. Gentiles are you and I. You and I are unclean. We are filthy. We are mired until we are touched by the water of life that comes out of the temple, out of the gospel. Technically, you should be able to say, that is my experience. Are you hearing me? That's what you and I should be saying. That is our experience. There are many more, more verses that could be alluded to that. Let me just walk through these and then we'll shut it down. Do a little Q&A and get out of here. The remedy of man's, uh, of man's ruin to Christ's righteousness is the work of the Spirit of God in the application of grace via water. Subpoint B, the purification of the gospel by the blood atoning work of Christ. What do I mean by that? The blood had to be uh, antecedent to the water. Christ had to die on the cross, he's the second person, for the third person to be delivered. Did that make sense? All right, and that's gonna be Hebrews 10, 21 through 23, you can read it. The blood atonement purchased our soul's cleansing. The reason you and I can be cleansed is because Christ paid for us. The cleansing is a function of redemption. Justification of the sinner leads to the sanctification of his what? The justification of the sinner leads to the sanctification of his soul. That's a beautiful truth. The justification of the sinner, which is the work that God does outside of you, that is not felt. You don't feel justification because justification is what God did 2,000 years ago on the cross in your behalf. Justification is the celebratory decree that comes to you in the gospel by which you are affirmed to be justified by faith. You are justified by faith. What that means is you are not justified by your work. You are justified by believing in his work. 
and the believing in the work of Christ merits you to be a participant of the outpouring of the Holy Ghost in the cleansing of the soul across a lot of different methods that God uses both in his community and by his community, both in his community and by his community. So I'll say this and we'll just do a little bit of conversation and get out of here. I need somebody to run the mic. You can come on up, uh, Giannis. I'll say this. I want you to capture. You can do this in the Q&A. Um, when we are talking, uh, she got, she's over here, over to the left, Craig, over here. Yeah. And then anybody else, raise your hand so we can get at this before we close down. You do always want to remember that the work that God does, he does to us, he does for us, to us, in us, and through us. You have to know that. So a lot of times what we will be enamored by is the fact that God does the work for us. We'll be super happy that God does the work in us. But then few I want to sign up to the fact that God will do the work through us. But the reality is, if God has done the work to you, it's by somebody that he has done the work through. And I've told you before, this thing should replicate itself. So your job should, should be to get a glass of fresh gospel water. drink and pass it on. If any man thirst, let him drink, right? And you should always keep a fresh jar of water called the gospel with you because you never know who might be thirsty for just a cup of cold water. All right, a few questions. We're going to shut it down. Sister, sister. Okay, so that was perfect segue to my question. Okay, so the question is, the pleasure of the Rome of Grace is in my heart, and I feel very um, inspired to be a vessel of the living water, yes. to take a sip and pass it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everybody has different gifts. And sitting here this last past year, I realized your gift is that you have a gift of Retaining the knowledge, not, and you probably spent a lot of time and a lot of hours doing that. It, it's a gift. I don't have that gift. Mm-hmm. Gift. Mm-hmm. It's in my heart. Of course. And a lot of times, perhaps because I want to be, you know, a bearer of light and love, people ask me, and I don't want to be like the day when your brother came to you and you were squirming around. So I was just wondering, is there like flashcards with <laughs> scriptures? Like I want to. I want to take this seriously. I, I've been thinking about this. Next um, level. Next level. Right? We're at the le- next level. Mm-hmm. Right. And her question is absolutely genius. And I'll tell you why. Because everybody is not capable or called to meticulously explaining the gospel in detail and particularly addressing issues. And however, it needs to come from this. However, it doesn't, no, can't no, just no, come from here. Uh, yeah, well, it can't come from your heart. But, I mean, I want right. to be now, right on the money with this. Right. So one of the things that we've always done and made available for people at Grace is what we call the simple gospel. We have tracks. Amen. The simple gospel. They're in the back. Anybody can have it. Everybody should read them because if you read them, obviously you're going to hear me. 
And because you agree, you're going to go up. Oh, this is as plain as day. You pass that to somebody, they got the gospel, right? And this is what we do with CDs and pointing them to listening to this and that. That's the way you do it. That's the way that it gets done. And then you read the track yourself over and over, and then you'll learn how to actually articulate those bullet points, okay? So like, for instance, I'm just being funny here, but like a Rosetta Spanish class, mm-hmm. like so that you can actually speak Spanish right. or like the DMV, you need to learn how to drive. Like you can't just nilly willy. There's there, and there's a test you have to take. Agree. And you have to, it's either, it's either right or wrong. That's right. So like that's, I want to have um, that to just call upon when the Holy Spirit, you know, bring somebody in my path. Um, Very good. Yeah. Totally got it. That's where we're going to start with Okay. You. Totally got it. And then we can talk about mechanisms for mnemonics on certain things that would be really good in general with witnessing. Mnemonics, I can work with, with you on that. But um, we'll start with the, uh, with the, with the tracks because they're great. We got tracks for um, evangelical sharing, just sharing the gospel, and then tracks dealing with what it means to be a witness. Okay. We got a lot of material in that regard. Great, Cindy, ready to go to the next level this year. And how cool is it to be confident that you can pass something to somebody and know they got an accurate assessment of the gospel? Cool. Yes. Right. Totally. Totally got it. There you go. She got it. Who has the mic? Uh, Lisa. Um, I have an on-the-job training question. So um, yesterday I downward spiraled pretty brutally and it ended up being at the park with the do- with my dogs and totally like this lady's dog was coming towards me and I just asked her politely and then just totally friggin' started F-bombing her like mm-hmm. crazy, like mm-hmm. like a machine gun. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then she F-bombed back and then, you know, ran away. And then after, I was, I was kind of like just out of control, like just out of my mind. Mm-hmm. And then um, I just started walking, and then I felt like, felt bad about doing that because I don't want to be divided and be like that anymore. Right. And so I told her, I said, I'm really sorry. I said, my sister just died. I said, I'm really, really sad. I'm sorry. I'm just out of control. And I just apologized. Um, but I, I don't understand why... There was such a delay for me to ask God about, like, say, sorry, I'm God, doing this. And then what I did is I did a works religion. I started picking up poo on the field, making it feel feel better. And so I went right into works, works. No, 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 no. So you want to ask me or you want to tell me what no, you No, I did? want to ask. Then, then, then the whole night... Um, then I started rehashing my conversation with my sisters and then totally, like, putting all the blame on them. Mm-hmm. And then at 3 o'clock in the morning, I woke up, and I just started praying to God, say, please help me. I'm just really so confused and right. lost right now right. and brokenhearted that okay. I'm actually treat, treating my sisters like this in my mind and treating another person like this. Right. And I don't understand how come it takes me so long to ask for help. Mm-hmm. And then I just stayed in, in prayer all night long. And when I woke up in the morning, I just had this premonition of, wow, it's so nice when you ask God and he gives you that grace. When you give other people that grace, 
you just feel so whole and just like you just love God so much and you're able just to be like awakened and alive again and want to live and then find joy. And but I don't I don't understand why the delay is there. Right. The, the delay is a uh, a learning a learning tool. It's a mechanism for Lisa learning herself in relationship to her struggles in the context of um, the need for growth, the need for growth in your confidence that even when you collapse, God is still with you. Let me see if I can build it out this way. First of all, I do want to say that you and I don't want to be trying to develop a sort of um, pragmatic approach to asking for forgiveness as if the vocalizing of the request to forgive is going to be met with an immediate sense of relief from the process of that struggle that you went through. Because that struggle is far more um, educational oriented than it is indictment oriented. Like what you went through wasn't designed for God to say, aha, she's out of my will, I'm going to blow, bring the hammer down on her. No. Um, that was for you to learn the depths of your um, disarray of soul and how it will express itself when you are not prepared to deal with conflict in the context of, um, of weakness and vulnerability. So every one of us will default into methods and modes of expression that we are used to as a defense mechanism um, until we learn how to do things a different way. I mean, I could talk to you in a much more counseling context to share with you how you set yourself up for that big bomb explosion. So it didn't happen right away. There were incremental setups. You already know that. And that's what we will do. We will incrementally set ourselves up for like a big explosion because we weren't able to cap it beforehand. Am I making some sense, you guys? Right. The other side of this equation, uh, the other side of this equation, and you might as well learn it now because some, some of us are like Lisa in that regard. Uh, we, we will actually internalize our anger and internalize our confusion and internalize our hurt, and then it will take off at a given punctiliar moment and go in 50 different directions at once. Everybody deals with it differently, but the way she dealt with it was for her to learn something about dealing with the process of struggle earlier on, because as you know, she does not want to be that way. That's a great insight. I don't want to do this every time I'm under pressure and I'm and, and toiling inside and going in 50 different directions. I don't want to explode on people. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm bizarrely wondering why it didn't dawn on me to call on God earlier. Well, the reality is, is she probably did have the inkling, the sort of deep, unspoken tuition to do it, but didn't do it. All right, so that's part also of our brokenness and sinfulness when we will have an intuition to call on God, but don't because we're simply preoccupied with a methodology of behavior that we just engage in. Am I making some sense? So also in terms of 
uh, being in the struggle uh, and then going and doing works, those works are not works of justification to get right with God as if you need to be saved. So that's a misapplication of that. Did you guys get what I just stated? She's not mentally thinking, I need justification and therefore I'm going around picking up dog food, okay? I mean, we could probably draw that metaphor out to other things. But no, what she was doing was a proxies of repentance. It's a proxies of repentance. And we all do that. In subtle ways, we begin to move away from the scene of the crime because we know we, we got to modify. We got we to alter. We got to come from a different direction. And how humbling and beautiful it was that she fundamentally stayed at the scene of the crime and cleaned up as a subservient party in a context where she could have been more of a disaster. Am I making some sense? All right, let me build upon that because your Bible is filled with those kinds of examples. And one of them I'm thinking about is Zacchaeus. Um, Zacchaeus was a tax collector and Jesus had called him to be with him. And Zacchaeus was struggling big time with knowing the gospel, but realizing he was one of them, them wicked, uh, wicked uh, oppressors financially. And when Jesus came to Zacchaeus and said, this day, I want to kick it with you, Zacchaeus brought Jesus to his home. And then Zacchaeus was telling him all he did to be fixing his problem. You know, I, I've cut my, you know, I've cut my charges. I've done this. I've done that. I've done the other thing. Well, what was working in Zacchaeus's heart? Repentance. Repentance is working in his heart. Not repentance to be saved, but be repentance because now he's being made aware of his sinnerhood. The first work of the Spirit is to convince you of your sin. He looks up and the master's there to save him. The master's there to save him. What a beautiful sort of work of the Spirit, revelation of Christ, affirmation of his salvation. Now he's got to go out and actually be part of Jesus' team with a bunch of people that don't like him now. See what I'm getting at? Now, does not, does not Jesus know he did all of that? Of course he does. All right, so I'm saying this to you and me as well, that we definitely should not be um, avoidant of modifying our behavior when we know we're on a trajectory of bad behavior. We definitely don't want to go, well, if I'm bad, I might as well just do worse until it all stops. No, no, no. Modify some kind of way. No, modify some kind of way. Because there are a lot of us that don't modify at all. And you need to know that you can modify. It's a grace to be able to modify. Um, And and we want to be able to modify better, but modify. Because notice at some point she finally did call on God. And again, I don't have time here to, to walk uh, uh, ferret it out fully, but I could with her. In counsel, I could take her through the whole day all the way up to the night because we all have daily pathologies, daily patterns. And there are times in our pathology, in our pattern of being that's much more vulnerable to us negotiating with our God than at other times. I totally get that. Do you know how long it took David to say I was wrong. A whole year. Do you understand what I said? Right, so no, we're not going to convolute the work of grace, the mystery of the work of grace. My sister back there needs a microphone. She's back there. 
Okay, I'll, we can get her, but give her one way back there. I'll get, I'll get, I'll get Nali up front. Go ahead on, go ahead on. Who has the mic? Uh, Leah. Did you guys capture what I just stated? And it's important for you to be able to catch these kind of insightful counseling elements because what they do for you and me is they help us um, understand uh, personal struggles of people that often we share. And we need to be able to capture this right. Everybody, everybody has a different procedural developmental mechanism before terminating with that crazy thing that we're dealing with. Every, like when a person is offended, people's temperature go way up and they are in the, the, the heated zone, what we call the focus trap. Didn't I teach you guys that, focus traps? People get into focus traps and they're not coming down until they come down. And while they're trapped in that focus trap, a lot of people can take advantage of them and we'll get the worst side of them. And so, you know, pastor, man, I ran into such and such and I was just joking. But she slapped me upside the back of my head. Uh, I'm being a little facetious, but I'm not. Because if you are insensitive to where people are, you're going to get what you get. Now, this is really applicable, what I'm saying now, in relationship. Because what God would tell you and me is to not provoke one another. Don't provoke one another. If you see somebody that's tilting, don't push them over. And then get mad when you push them over and they land on top of you. Am I making some sense? No, 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 no. Back away, back away. Give them some space. But be socially intelligent about it. Leah. I wrote it down because I didn't want to mess it up. Um, So hopefully this ties in with um, last three lessons. So I'm witnessing, on an ongo- I'm witnessing an ongoing lesson on patience and passion and how they can live together in a marriage context. I recently started a new job as a private caregiver for an elderly couple where the wife had an operation for a fractured femur. The nurse who gives me the referrals told me it's just helping her stay off her right leg. Otherwise, everything else is okay because she is still a young 70-year-old. Mm-hmm. The only problem is her husband drinks a lot and probably has slight dementia, and because of this, he keeps her up at night. The nurse said that she had to speak to him about keeping his wife up. The nurse was puzzled because I'm replacing one of the caregivers the husband fired because the caregiver was a great worker. Mm-hmm. So I go to work, and the other caregiver that survived the chop showed me the ropes and told me the same thing as the nurse, that the wife is sweet, but the husband loves the wine, mm-hmm. is approaching dementia, and he keeps the wife up. Mm-hmm. Bear in mind, they've been married since Adam was a boy, so they've been married for a while. I've only worked two days at this job, and my observation and assessment is different from the nurse and the caregiver. This guy is very successful in his business life. And to reach that level of success, you have to be a certain personality type. True. Demanding, neurotic, etc., etc. Largely. When I was watching their husband and wife relationship, all I saw was passion and patience dynamics. This elderly man loves his wife in a smothering way like a kid who loves his little puppy or kitten and doesn't realize he's almost choking it. He's the passion kid in love with the patient's T 
temporary care. I realise the Lord blessed me to see a live witness of how a patient's temperate wife endures with her passionate husband. This guy is a real pill. He micromanages everything in the house and schedules everything for his wife to the point of dictating her healing. To us modern women, ain't no way we're going to deal with the burdens and traits of that kind of man, right? However, his wife complies. The truth is, she doesn't need help from me, but that's his way of showing he cares for her in hiring me. Even the wife told me that. All that burdens and traits to live under is enmeshed with his caring and loving side, and he's funny. I like his sarcastic humor. This woman is tough as nails. She was one of the first female lobbyists in DC and worked in various political positions in DC for 30 years, so she's no pushover. But I watch her just submit to her so-called crazy husband's demands. I see a woman who's bared up under his neurotic way for 30 years, and who are we to come in, into their home to change it? I realize why the other caregiver got fired, because she probably tried to tell him to stop pestering the wife. I decided to just watch how the wife deal with her husband, and I decided to follow suit. I'm learning vicariously through her submission too. She's a highly intelligent woman, and she clearly can cry help for herself, but she doesn't because she sees something more in her husband that we don't see. What the Lord did at first was allowed Mr. Smith and I to get to know one another. He loves going to the movies, so they go to the movies four times a week. So now Leah has to go with them to the movies too. On our way there, he asked me if I liked movies, and I didn't have the sense to lie. I just said, I hate movies. I don't have the attention span for it. I read the Wikipedia plot summary and save two hours and fifteen dollars. Mm -hmm. So we go watch a movie called Argyle. It's a spy movie, which I didn't care for, but because it was all Hollywood, you know, MK Ultra predictive sure. and stuff. Sure. Sure. And afterwards, he wants to engage about the movie, and they both like the actress who played the main character, who was Ron Howard's uh, plump daughter. I said, I liked her when she played the MK Ultra persona of sweet, independent, career, successful, longing for love girl next door. But when she switched to the murderous spy mode persona, I didn't think she suited it because I'm accustomed to girls like Jennifer Lawrence, who usually plays these types of roles, than Red Sparrow, you know, the skinny girls. And I just hated how Hollywood is lying to us that you can do the whirly bird with a plump chick. No, it's an anomaly if you can whirly bird a plump chick. But most guys will, you know, wouldn't risk their necks to do a whirly bird with, you know, with a big bone person. But you know, I just that was an opinion I had about the movie. Anyway, he goes, "Well, someone who doesn't watch movies, you pretty much know a lot about about it." And I said, "I told you. I read Wikipedia plot summaries, and I see trailers of the movies plastered ev everywhere, so you get the imagery." I think from that conversation, he kind of understood my personality. So when he micromanages her. He micromanages me because I'm hired to help her. And I know the only way I can get through the day is if I follow her. So the culture in the house is we eat late at 10 p.m. He was at the gentleman's club, so we had to wait for him to come before we ate. And I'm hungry, so I tell her, I'm going to eat. But then when I saw her face, she was sad, so I said, never mind, I'll eat with you. After dinner, her and I had to you know, sleep downstairs. 
because of her leg. And last night I said to her, your husband cracks me up. He's like a micromanaging potentate. But even though he's overbearing and he gets on your nerves, but you can see how much he loves and cares for you, but doesn't know how to tone down the years of playing hard in the business world to be normal at home. She understood exactly what I meant, and she had the biggest smile on her face that I realized that's how I'm going to comfort her. Just come alongside her and follow her lead when he's playing ogre and bully towards her, because it's not all the time, um, but there's many times he's gentle and tender to her. And when we are alone, I'm not going to criticize him or say he drinks too much. I'm going to remind her I see the same things she sees. Then he came downstairs to tell us to stop giggling. <laughs> so I know it's easy for me to affirm her to keep, you know, keep to tell her to keep bearing under his bully ways, because I don't, because I don't have to live or sleep with him. But I also don't get the diamond rings, the multi-million dollar house, the flash car. I told you she ain't stupid. She's she's not a victim or she's not dumb. She just understands it's women like her that glue society together. This morning, this alcoholic man with dementia woke up early because he wanted to say goodbye to me because I leave at 8 a.m. in the morning. And his wife said, you are becoming fast friends with him. And I took it as a token from God that perhaps I'm assessing it the right way. Please pray for Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Very good. Um, thank you for that. I'm going to keep moving because that was a nice story. And, and there could be a ton of things said, and I'm not. But you got, you got a very good assessment of your assignment there. Very good. Um, Jamila. Um, so I need a little guidance. You're going to have to put the mic to your head. There so you I need a little guidance. Mm -hmm. um, so one of my very best girlfriends were like sisters. There's three of us. Um, we're all believers. But the girlfriend in question who says that she's a believer, has been living a homosexual lifestyle for quite some time. Mm -hmm. And a few years ago, I just let her know that um, there's aspects of her life that um, I couldn't be a part of because it doesn't align with my beliefs. But that I love her, that I'm praying for her, I'm here to support her in any way that I can. Don't let the mic drop. But just know that, like, I can't come to certain parties of or course. certain events. Of course. Um, fast forward to very recently, she is now engaged to a woman who identifies as a man. Sure. Um, and she's angry at me and my other girlfriend. I know that she's projecting um, because her anger is coming out at our faith and our beliefs, even though she claims that she believes. She shares in the same belief system. Um, but I know that I believe that the struggle is more internal for her. And so she's projecting it onto us because she's conflicted. Um, we are all going to sit down and have a conversation tomorrow. And just thinking back on the lesson today about the law and positioning ourselves with our loved ones so that we compel them just trying to make sure that I'm still coming from a place of love mm -hmm. and support, but also not compromising my beliefs. Mm -hmm. Right. So. Well, very simply put, um, 
you can say that. And, and it would be really wise to do. The, what you say to people that you love and care about, particularly with something as um, politically charged as this one. Um, the politically charged nature of the present situation with homosexuality, transgenderism, and attempts to wed that to holy matrimony or marriage is an essential uh, assault on the gospel and, 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 and the nature of humanity as understood by God. So it's not a small thing um, at all. And therefore, when we go, <clears throat> I love you as a person, I do not agree with your lifestyle. <clears throat> That's as short and terse as you need to put it. And then you can, you can reason and discourse around um, the nuances of wanting to try to maintain a relationship, but why it's going to be difficult. So whenever you and I are engaging in something that is overtly contrary to the word of God, it itself by nature will create separation by nature. So there are two things that separate us, doing right and doing wrong. So if a person does right, like you and your, your girl are trying to do, that itself is going to continue to sustain a wedge with this girlfriend who is perpetually doing wrong. Again, so the rule is how can two walk together except they be agreed. So the best thing to do is to make sure that your stance is laid out in a simplistic way. Do not over-verbalize where you're coming from. Look, here are, here's the deal. We love you as a person, obviously. We don't think that you could be able to indict us for not loving you. We do not agree with your lifestyle because it's explicitly contrary to Scripture, and we need to find a way to be able to uh, hey, cut that mic off, Marlis, because we just heard you scraping and scratching and going, is that my mic on? That's not cool at all. Um, we need to find a way to uh, mutually engage each other without offending. So often what's going on is the person that's operating out of the trend of political correctness will feel like they have the right to bully you. Okay, and 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 the Christian has to be able to let people know I'm not a political pawn. You don't you, you're not going to bully me. I actually believe in God. So, you, you know, there's not going to be a bullying here. I'd love to have a relationship with you. But if you think you're going to bully me, we might as well stop right now. It's going to be that simple. And you're going to lose her to the deeper, darker culture of changing the nature of God, changing the nature of God, because that's what this is at the larger theological level, since we're completely denying our genetic immutable traits as having their origin in God and, and being framed by God's purpose for us in them to now being able to say, as a woman, I'm a man, or as a man, I'm a woman, 
and therefore two women can marry and two men can marry. And in addition to two women marrying and two men marrying, they can also deny that they're two women marrying and two men marrying. You guys do understand that. This is some stuff that we're dealing with in the church too. So this is why, you know, some, some of our pastors who have been more prominent have fallen prey to acquiescing to this and don't understand that this rises up to the level of the nature of God and it rises up to the level of um, the witness of Christ and the church. You know, Christ is not a woman and he never will be. And the church is never viewed in the covenantal context as a man. It never will be. Uh, and that complementarian subordination of the woman to her husband, as, as uh, Leah was just sharing, you know, I will not go back into that detail, but I can tell you something. What Leah caught as what we call an, an axiomatic principle. I talked to you about chief organizing principles, how to keep your priorities straight. Leah could have collapsed into a hyper-feminist orientation and been utterly mad at her husband and then found ways to be part of an agency of deconstruction and take over in the home with the wife, which would have been destroying the wife too. But Leah was able to remain objective enough to understand that in his humanity as a man, there are fundamental weaknesses to the man that you marry as there are fundamental weaknesses to the woman he married. And that the way they are negotiating their relationship is the ground of tolerance. Now, because one is much more passionate than the other, obviously we learn how to create that complementarian relationship. It would be better in any relationship where uh, one person is passionate that the other person offsets that passion with patience. Just offset it, particularly if the passion is not comprehensively narcissistic and predatorial and destructive. If the passionate brother is narcissistic, predatorial and destructive, he's not going to be married long or he's not going to be married to a real woman because a real woman won't be able to tolerate massive narcissism and destructive behavior and remain a woman. A woman is a thing. She's not a slave. She's not a doormat. She's a thing. You guys understand what I mean. So the woman is going to preserve her right as a woman, even if it means distancing herself from the monster element in him a million miles away, if, half, if, if necessary. But for them to be able to live in that space and they both understand their weaknesses and strength, that's a vague emblem of the gospel. That's a vague emblem of the gospel. All that home needs now is the broom to come through properly and then some water. And the Lord Jesus can slide right on up in there and take his seat on the throne of their heart. You guys see that, right? Now with our sister back there, that's my girl. We go way back. Uh, this one is tough because the only way this thing can get corrected is if it gets busted up. Jesus is not going to come sit in, t in that with it twisted like that. No, he coming in to rearrange furniture. He going to repaint. He going to change rooms around. Do you, you, if he comes up in there, you know, it's going to be radical modification. Oh, thank you for that. Um, I spoke to a few other of my Christian girlfriends about the situation. And I, I 
think to your point about the political influencing the church, their position is, well, you have to support her. You should go to the wedding whenever it occurs because Christ is love. And I didn't, I didn't agree with that stance. Right. Of course, because it's not true. Good. Okay. It's, it's not true. Love, does, love is not permissive. You know that. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. And as we've had to work it through with one of our dearest pastors in his prominent position, we've had to work it through as pastors and theologians. As soon as this becomes a trend, marriage is over with. Do you understand that? Because the farce that will be perpetrated by the priest or the bishop in the expression of vows can never be biblical where a man is marrying a man and a woman is marrying a woman. Throughout the totality of the complexity of marriage, those are farcical events where a man is marrying a man and a woman's marrying a woman. There is nothing sanctified in that. It utterly denies origin, purpose, and design. You see, it's going to be a propaganda scandal, which we are becoming used to, are we not? The church cannot endorse that and think that it won't be completely converted into a monstrosity of reprobation and distorted, uh, distorted uh, witness. Can't be done. So you know what has to happen? We have to painfully abstain. So bless you, girl, you know. Who, who has the mic? Who, who, okay. All right, Marlis, we'll get to you and we'll close it down. Um, I just wanted to say um, I appreciate very much what I learned tonight about the cleansing water themes. I hadn't really seen it uh, as clearly as you explained it tonight. And... I appreciate very much about your talking about the damsel coming in the house that was really messed up. I've, I just want to say that I'm, I'm going to link a couple of things together. I had mentioned last week that I was tired and I was wondering if the vaccine had done something. Well, I discovered something. Um, I, I'm not sure. I may be tired because of the vaccine, but I, I found out that I had a whole burst of energy yesterday when I thought the um, some construction workers had seen inside the house, and it was it was just a mess. The kitchen was filled with dishes, counter junk all over it, laundry piled all in the living room. It just looked horrible and I suddenly had all of this energy um, to get it straightened out so I don't know if one of the things I was reminded of I tend to work under pressure and or under the threat of shame and I, I don't like that but that seems to be the case um, 
but I perhaps the truth is based on what you were saying about um, the damsel coming in a really wrecked up house. Maybe that's just part of our process of sanctification, dealing with a lot of our own, our messes and our shames. I, I don't know. Um, you ready to make that a question? I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, just feel free to comment as you see fit. That's the best thing I can do because I... I, because well, so remember what I shared with you before, so you get a pass because Leah gave us a long story too. So when those kind of things happen, you guys know we we're gonna be in for a long story, because it becomes a pattern for all of us. You have to nip it when you know that you are. So when you when you get to a point where you are able to turn a statement into a question, uh, Marlis, you won't, and you'll keep going. And that's wearisome to, to the mind. Okay? So it's wearisome. In other words, that's for all of us here. That's why I, I know a lot of people don't ask questions. But if you do, you can't sit there and really draw it out because that's not fair to the ears. So I'll, I'll stop you when I know there's a question there and that's, this is where it is. We don't have to go somewhere else. That's not fair for people. You got, can you guys understand what I'm saying about that? So I really need you guys to not do that because it's not fair to people because people can hear, people can assess, people can know where you're going. They don't want to go around two bushes and then a third bush somewhere else. That's not fair. Well, let's do that with, with, um, you know, and the, when we're not talking. When you get behind the mic, this is what I say to you guys in prayer too. There's a difference between public prayer and private prayer. Do not be all over the place in, in, in public as if it's just you and the Lord. The Lord can listen to you for the rest of your life nonstop. We can't. And the same, and the same thing with this is not, we should become much more socially sensitive when we're sharing. Your stories are beautiful. We were fully blessed with, with, with Leah's. But if, if you know we got seven or eight people to go, if you, if you, if you, you know, generalize that, that's a long conversation. And that's a challenge to our ears. And, and we don't want that. So I got your question and that's where we're going to clip it. Because we could talk a long time, but not here. Um, I would agree with you. I would agree with you that the analogy of the, um, the, the, the um, damsel cleaning up the house because of its messiness may have a significant corresponding idiosyncratic correlation to you. Own it and, and run with it. Um, I don't think it answered the other question at all. You and I don't want to live in a context of the only time we start doing what we should do is when we're in crisis mode. That made sense, right? All right, so we got you. I definitely want to close it down. So Nylee will, will be next. Thank you. Um, There's <clears throat> a few questions here, but you'll find out what my question is after I share all of them. So concerning spiritual warfare, what is the difference between possession and oppression? Does God allow the enemy to torture us in order to train us to stand firm in the face of evil? Does it have to involve suffering when you are called? 
Do we have to serve God with the constant experience of having a target on our backs? Can it be smoother and easier? Does it have to hurt so much to go against the wisdom of the world to follow God and not the system? Does it necessarily have to be so painful and crazy? I feel like I need a thicker skin to do ministry and not go crazy. I get really triggered sometimes. I can get angry at the sight of evil, and sometimes the reality of the way things are is heartbreaking. I don't know if it is truly God's will for me to be tortured, yet I want to be able to handle what I'm called to handle that is the true will of God. And there are things being revealed that I feel I might be too innocent to be exposed to. I want to grow up, and I want to retain my innocence. And I'm also requesting prayers for protection. Yeah. Cut that mic off for me. The, the challenge with that set of queries and propositions, though they are orderly and overlapping um, in their relationship, which I thank you for that, because there were a lot of questions, but they're all correlated. An, a, a potential answer is growth in your character. Um, a second answer will be growth in your character at being able to assess what you're going through and making sure that you know the difference between the objective facts of what you're going through and the subjective inferences that you might read into it. That's, that's, a, that's a critical thing. And that would be because <clears throat> the impact that, that those events that are having on you at some point will prove to not be edifying. Because the goal of trials, though painful as they may be, is to build you. And so, if I'm going through a process of trying, whatever way we might want to call it, I don't like the term torment, but that's another conversation. Uh, because where there is a concept of tor torment, it means we are not either viewing the trial right or we are putting ourselves in an abusive situation from a wrong understanding of what it is that we're doing. You guys need to know that. God does not bring you into states of perpetual torment to build you up. Uh, torment requires needing deliverance when you're in torment. But I'm, what I'm stating to Nylee is that a significant portion of what she's talking about falls under three categories. Potentially a lack of maturity. Secondly, a distortion of the events factually that can become problematic because then they become partially self-inflicted wounds. Okay, that's, that's really important to know. To know. Um, and thirdly, it's just extremely important to know the difference between being in a trial and being in a temptation. When you are squarely in a temptation, your role is to flee. When you're in a trial, there are going to be measures of grace given that don't result in you being defeated or diminished or um, non-redemptively afflicted, okay? There's a whole lot of reasons for understanding that. Trials are designed to make you stronger. They are designed for Christ to be manifest in you in a way in which you can see the 
preservation of his grace working to keep you in the midst of a difficulty. So I'll leave that right there because those are the three very important areas that you got to work through. I'll close with James. Uh, You waving something? You waving, Jamila? No? Okay, because I can't see way back there. Oh, okay. You waving too? Huh? Oh, you were talking to her. Okay. All right, James, go ahead. You know, what what I'm trying to work through is what's going on in the world. I think I alluded to this earlier when I sent you an email, thinking through the situation, you know, with our pastor who's in the same subject the sister was speaking about earlier uh, and his capitulation maybe to where he is. You know, listening to some of the things he said, I could sort of get by understanding the overall arch of it. You know, we yeah, have yeah, to yeah. stand, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, know, uh, you know, for the Lord. But I guess I'm drawn to this concern that it's like we, the majority of the church doesn't have the gospel right. And what I mean by that is, is that all the propaganda around Israel good, Israel right, Palestine wrong. And that's the narrative just about over everywhere that I've looked, everywhere that I've seen. I mean, no matter what publication, that's the assumption. So if that being an assumption, and that assumption is found wrong or incorrect, where does that leave us when we're trying to present the gospel or even well, maybe not so much us but when they're trying to present the gospel I mean if we're all headed if possible in a contrary direction I guess my question would be how do we how do we correct that okay so I'm, I'm gonna make two or three observations and I'll have a couple guys help me take my board down so this here is the, the question that James is raising has to do with large optics, minor optics, has to do with big, big principles of, uh, of, of theological aberrations at the kingdom level, and then the minor principle of theological aberrations at the sort of personal and uh, social level. They are really two sides of the same coin. And what I mean by that is the misrepresentation of the nature of the kingdom of God being falsely described by a pseudo-Zionist model of a kingdom is equivalent to the misrepresentation of a man wanting to be a woman and a woman wanting to be a man and both falsely uh, designing a, a marital covenant event. Do you guys see what I just stated? The fallacy of a man and a woman uh, uh, misrepresenting their natures in addition to wanting to couple that misrepresentation at the context of covenant are two false propagandized images. Did that make some sense? And they both serve to create the apostate nation, the apostate nation. Um, I, I see it so clearly. 
if our churches continue down this trajectory, it'll meet in a pseudo-Zionist false church apostate system with all of these weird aberrations of human expression because of a failure of both sides realizing that King Jesus is absent from the equation. King Jesus is not in Zionism as it's represented in, in Israel. He's not even the conversation. How are you going to have a Zion without the king of Zion? You can't. And then you got this, this thing called, you know, shape-shifting humans that want to constitute a, a marital covenant without submission to King Jesus there. These are two false propagandized CIA constructed Western constructs. They're constructs. Am I making sense to you guys? They're false constructs. And the church has always been duped by this foolishness where King Jesus is not. Remember the rule, where is Jesus in it? Shh, we ain't talking about Jesus. Okay, I can't come. Right, and, and, and this is the thing I've been wanting you guys for the longest. Doing church without Jesus, this is what people do. They do church without Christ, and it's, a, it's an abject failure. It's not possible to have a vital, successful relationship with the true and the living God and be conformed to the image of his son, where his son is not the CEO the chief operating system of all of your convictions, of all of your ideas, of all of your theological framework, of everything that you do, of Christ, because he's being, Christ is being eclipsed across every system of the world and being replaced by all kinds of religions, all kinds of ideologies, all kinds of constructs, up and down. You have to know that. May God help us see all of these battlefronts as being part of the same kind of matrix, if y'all understand what I'm saying. Uh, I see them both as the same. I see, I see from the ground up men and women who are headed towards transhumanism, and I see from the top down uh, systems of governance that if they can operate at a high level of uh, techno-bureaucratic um, bio-surveillance state artificial intelligence, global control, massive global control, we have the makings for an antichrist society. If that made any sense to you whatsoever. If that made any sense to you whatsoever, while people are playing on the ground, ground going through all this con conforming to Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 2 got false judges sitting in positions of authority perpetuating this foolishness. This is why Sunday we're going from the self-righteous Jew to the righteous Jew because Paul is one who has come under radical lordship of Christ and the transformation in his soul has given him the boldness to call out false Judaism and reestablish a biblical Judaism in the face of Judaism so that we can know what we can look for going, going forward. And I'm, I'm very happy about that. It's, these are all disconcerting times, you guys. Please know that these are disconcerting times and we have to be prayerful and, uh, and prudent. Prayerful and prudent. Not fearful, prayerful and prudent. And even if you do become fearful, because I, I get that, I'm a pastor, I get that. 
because it, we're, we're becoming comfortably uh, exposed to dystopian life. There's no doubt about it. And it can get worse before it gets better. So I would say to everybody that operates at whatever level of authority that God has given you, um, uh, you know, authority over your own person, that is to say under Christ, you know, submit yourself to God and be at peace with him. Uh, uh, if you are a husband, authority over your family, merits that you train, you know, teach your family how to understand the two Babylons and, and operate in the system well. Um, if you're a wife, you know, and you are married and you're under a, a, a husband, you know, know how to operate with, with your husband so as not to be a culprit to the disarray that you will be subject to because of a lack of vision on the part of your husband and vice versa. The battle is in the home. It always has been. The battle is always in the home. It always has been. And so husbands and wives have to be wise to know how to toe the line, hold a line, hold a him, gentlemen, hold a him. Gentlemen, if God has given you the, 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 the North Star, hold the him, no matter who's acting crazy and jumping over ship. Hold the him, gentlemen. Hold the him. Uh, and... Um, and again, good women, you know, know how to sit in the pocket and do what God has called you to do. Remain being female. Female is a beautiful thing. An absolutely beautiful thing. Remain being female and remain uh, supporting your female sisters too. Just because that's the work for females. Sup support your good ones because a lot of them going to jump deck for this crazy stuff. Those are self-hating behaviors. When you, when you, when you adopt homosexuality, and lesbianism, you are engaging in self-hate. And, and we don't know that, but, but that's what we do. They'll call it self-love, but it's, it's, it's really self, it's a form of self-hate. And, and, and uh, Javila, you know, you do know, because that's your girl, that deep down inside, she's struggling. Right. Because they do, because I've already told you, Romans 1 says they know. Okay, they know and, and, and they're struggling, even if they suppress it well by anger, make a bunch of money, become big Hollywood stars and go, nah, 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 the rest of us broke folk. Eventually, you know, the enemy walks them out on the plank and then cuts the plank and they fall. And there's another one that disappears from the planet. Is that right? Well, there it is again. Another one. They thought they were going to live forever. No, once your bill is up. You go in to walk the plank, the world's going to watch you and you're going to disappear because that's the price of working for the devil. All right, you guys join me in prayer. So Father, thank you for your mercy and your kindness and your goodness. We thank you for these sober questions and we pray that the, uh, the bride of Christ, the church, who is that damsel that is engaged in the commission of the great king to wash and sanctify hearts, after the, the law has done its work of convincing of, of sin. May we be able to, by application, serve in both ways and whatever is necessary to build men and women up in the most holy faith, Lord. Help us to, uh, help us to be grounded in the year 2024 as things become 
much more topsy-turvy. Help us to think it through. Help us to think it through and uh, help us to make our calling and election sure. This we're praying in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.